You're listening to TIP. On today's show, I talk with a fan favorite again, Spencer Hillegas. Spencer last joined me on Millennial Investing to talk about the beginning of his real estate journey. And today he joins me on the new show dedicated entirely to real estate investing to talk about how he went from being an individual active investor to a full-time passive syndication investor, what a real estate syndication is, and how new investors can get started. If you haven't already checked out my other show where I had Spencer as a guest last time, it's called Millennial Investing, and I cover investing in the stock market, personal finance, entrepreneurship, side hustles, and much more. Also, if you're looking for more content, be sure to follow me on Instagram. I post new content there every day, and I love connecting with the listeners of the show. You can follow me on Instagram with my username, Robert at TIP. That's spelled out as Robert, A-T-T-I-P. I'll also put a link to it in the show notes. Now, without further delay, let's jump into today's conversation with Spencer Hillegas. You're listening to Real Estate Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Real Estate Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Leonard. And with me, I have Spencer Hillegas. Welcome to the show, Spencer. Hey, Robert. Thanks so much for having me back. Uh, The last time that we spoke on a podcast, I had a really good time. For those who may not have heard your episode on the Millennial Investing Show, walk us through your background and how you got to where you are today. So I currently live out here in Alameda, California, which is in the Bay Area. Um, for those of you guys that actually aren't familiar with that, Alameda is just a cool island that's tucked between Oakland and San Francisco, California. I just two months ago quit my previous career of 13 years, and that career was in Silicon Valley startups. You know, think of that as the local business. Pretty scary step, you know, but it wasn't quite as scary as most people probably think about it when you go away from a W-2 job, really stable income, and you go out and you go full-time into entrepreneurship as an entrepreneur. I, I think about going all the way back to, to my upbringing. Um, my dad was actually one of the top performing residential real estate brokers in the United States uh, back in the 90s. And so, you know, I got exposed to that lifestyle and all the benefits that come along with it pretty early. I mean, he made me go work open houses for him at the age of around 15. And I, I absolutely hated it <laughs> at the time. I did take away quite a few learnings from that experience, but all in all, life was pretty good around then. We, we had a really prosperous few years, but just after that, my family actually entered a, a time that we called the dark decade. And it really was brought on by a couple of the key things. My younger brother, uh, Justin, he passed away from, uh, from cancer through a battle for a few years. And, you know, it, it led to a divorce between my parents, which is pretty common in those scenarios. And frankly, a total devastating financial kind of downfall uh, for my whole family, uh, you know, resulted from those events. And so I, I bring that up because I watched all that unfold. And a lot of that occurred right around the time I was about to leave college and go out into the working world full time. At that point, I had done a few internships and I had worked really hard at, you know, just college jobs, making six bucks an hour at a catering company and all that other kind of stuff. The stuff you do when you're younger, right? But I bring all that up because 
what I learned and observed from that whole experience with watching my dad and our family go through that financial devastation was like, how could we better protect ourselves? And how could I have helped more? And now I'm a, I'm a parent, you know, I have my own two young kids. And so I wonder, how can I protect my family from that kind of financial devastation? When you're a broker, like my dad was, when you stop doing those jobs, the income stops flowing in. That, and that's why we call them active. So on the flip side, you know, there, there are all these different ways of actually bringing in predictable income in ways that don't require you to constantly be on. And so I really looked at that, the, those series of events with my dad and my family going through that as, as a way to, to get a spark of inspiration around how to, how to be financially defensive, how to have a financial defense mindset. And so I bring that up because just flash forward to 2016, I was five software companies into my technology career. And I was sitting there going, man, you know, life's pretty good, but I've been doing this 60 to 80 hour a week grind at tech companies now for the last 13 years. And I had a 401k account I was really proud of, but we didn't really have an, an exit plan. You know, we didn't have an exit strategy. We didn't have a way to go and just say, okay, if we continue on this path, how do we get off the train? Like, like I, I, on the current path, I basically would have to bank on what so many people in Silicon Valley expect when they join startups, which is someday the, that equity from their company that they get as an early joiner, whether it's an A series, B series, you know, C and beyond, they get that equity and they expect that to be like their get out of jail free card when that company finally has a big liquidity event, like an IPO, or they get acquired or, you know, the other versions of those things. So all of that said, I didn't see that materializing for us. And that scared, that scared me. That, you know, that's the opposite of being financially defensive for my family in the event that I actually, like, what happens if I get hit by a bus? What happens if, like, I have a debilitating disease? Of course, my, my business partner and my wife, Jennifer, has a very successful career of her own. So we would still have, you know, meaningful income coming in, of course. But to do my half, I wanted to make sure that I protected against that. And so my most recent company was actually called Lending Home. And I was uh, building their origination teams there. We were doing 600 loans per month. These are flip loans. And when I joined, they were doing about 150. And when I left, they were doing 600. So I learned residential investing that way, but I really, really, really didn't want to be a flipper. So I got the bug and I got the bug on multifamily. And, and, and that means, man, I read 24 books. And, you know, just to dive into it, I listened to over 400 podcasts and I just ravenously became obsessed with uh, learning and ramp, ramping up on this knowledge. Flash forward to 2020, we are now 18 deals into into building a business that started out just as us being passive investors. You know, we, we actually started being what's called limited partners and in passively investing in multifamily because we found that to be the most appropriate way to invest in real estate to generate a monthly income that didn't require harder work. It's just investing the funds and signing the paperwork and doing the diligence up front. And so very organically, we built a business out of that. And now I, I just two months ago, as I mentioned up front, we, we, I quit that, that career entirely. It was really bittersweet. I had to say goodbye to my team and all these different, uh, you know, awesome benefits that come along with being a W2 employee. But every day I wake up with such an awesome inspiration with a sense of joy. I still work incredibly hard, but it's on my own terms. And I find that to be really, really fulfilling. Going back to the beginning of your investing journey, before you were able to quit your full-time job, you were investing in single-family rentals and turnkey properties. For those who haven't heard the term turnkey, what is a turnkey property? Turnkey properties 
you know, they, they have a, a polarizing brand out there. Some, some people think they're really amazing. Some people kind of say, stay, stay away. But here's, here's what they are. Most people are familiar with a single family home because we've lived in them at some point. As a single family rental is just a home that's now being owned by a landlord that's being rented out. A turnkey property means that if I'm the investor, I can go and find a company that's a turnkey provider. They will sell me that single family home. It will, they will already have placed tenants that are paying the rent that have, you know, they've signed the lease and that property is already in great condition or I should say good enough condition. So it doesn't have any deferred maintenance. So when you buy it and take possession of it, you don't have to go in and invest tens of thousands of bucks just to get that property in livable condition and rentable condition. The last but not least part, which is probably the most important part of a turnkey property that makes it interesting to people is it also comes with the property management relationship built in. You realized turnkey and single family properties weren't really scalable, so you transitioned to larger deals through syndications. Why aren't turnkey and single family properties scalable? We did realize that at some point they weren't scalable because we wanted to achieve our goals in a much faster timetable than originally forecasted. You know, we, we ran this exercise and we looked at it and said, we want to be financially free. And if you define financially free as we have enough income coming in, in rental income, in cash flow to cover all of our expenses. So if we just stopped working, then we'd be good to go. And so we ran this exercise and we saw that if we just did the, the single family home path for that, it would take us 15 years. <laughs> so that was too long. And we wanted to chop that in half. So we, we looked beyond the turnkey and the single family home strategy because it just wasn't enough. It wasn't fast enough. You know, we wanted to compress that timetable. So we realized that we were going to have to go and look up market and that bigger is better. And we started to actually invest into multifamily apartment syndications. And they're pretty large. You know, you can invest in anything, any apartment size, of course, if it's like 10 units, 20 units, 50 units. But we, we particularly were interested in the large apartment communities. So, so these are like 150 units plus. There, there's a ton of great reasons to do that. But, you know, one of the things that I really appreciate about large apartment communities is the stability and the predictability. Let's say you have a 400 unit apartment community and one of those tenants leaves. Now you've got 399 occupied units and one empty one. Now, if I did the same, you know, similar scenario to one of our single family homes, we actually are, you know, true story, like we're literally dealing with an eviction on one of them right now. The occupancy level on those turnkey properties, on that one turnkey property with the eviction rather, it just went from 100% to zero overnight. And so that, the, that learning for us, it just made it very real that we're going to have to look elsewhere for something that's stable, predictable, and moves a lot faster in terms, of, uh, in terms of returns. So we ended up going to real estate syndications. What exactly is a real estate syndication? We hear this term often thrown around in the real estate space, but give us a definition of what a real estate syndication is. A syndication, if you're not familiar with that term in this context, what that means is that it's basically just a bunch of people pooling their capital together and their resources and buying something so big, you know, that they couldn't have purchased it alone. 
That's all that it is. It's just a pooling of stuff together. Everyone goes and buys something bigger together. I know that not everyone is legally able to invest in real estate syndications according to SEC rules. So what does it take for someone to be able to invest in these types of deals? What's interesting about the SEC criteria or the thresholds to meet accredited investor status, that, you know, that, that is a, a status that is defined by the SEC on paper pretty clearly, but it still leads to some confusion. And, and it's because there's two ways to qualify. You either have to make enough money income-wise so you can qualify from your income, or you can qualify based on your assets. If you qualify based on your income, it's you know 200,000 bucks over the past two years, and then you expect to make 200,000 bucks this year as well. That means you can qualify based on your income to be an accredited investor. On the other side, for assets, if you have a net worth of over a million dollars, not including your primary residence, then you are able to qualify based on assets. The vast majority of folks you know, that out there, if they do qualify for accredited investor status, then they will actually meet it based on income. I mean, a lot of folks in the coastal markets, particularly here in the Bay Area, they hit it because of the income levels and the, you know, the higher salaries that come along with the market. So I wanted to bring up that definition of accredited because I would say the vast majority of the syndications that you find in the, in the direct deal space, and by direct, what I mean is you go find an operator or a sponsor that, you know, those are the folks that are actually putting this together a deal like this who are looking for others to invest in them passively. And, and they will typically expect you to be accredited. Some of them do allow non-accredited investors, though, a limited number of them. And so, but, but it is, uh, the burden does fall on them to make sure that, you know, if you want to go out and invest in one of those deals, you actually have to, to, you have to study a little bit, right? I mean, you just have to know what you're getting into because, you know, that sponsor is not allowed to take your capital if you are not what's called a sophisticated investor. As you get into larger real estate syndications, you start to compete with private equity firms and other larger players in the real estate space. Let's just take Grant Cardone, for example. How does this impact the returns of a syndication deal? What are average returns to an LP, which is just the limited partner, for a typical real estate syndication? You know, it's so interesting to look at the sizes of these properties, you know, of these, these, these apartment buildings and communities that are out there. Because if you look at the ranges and sizes, I mean, we've, we've closed on deals that are, you know, 10 million, 20 million, 40 million, all the way up to 80 million. And you don't necessarily see institutional competition until you start getting up to, uh, up to that 80 to 100 million purchase price. And so, you know, there's a whole wonderful, amazing, like, like network of folks that focus just on like the mid range you know, 20, 30, $40 million properties. And so it, it just, the competition shifts depending on what, what size that you're going for. So we don't necessarily always go for this, the, uh, the stuff that is competing with institutions to acquire them. So let's talk about the returns that you asked about. You know, I'm only going to speak to our own personal experience as putting our own capital into this. Um, so, so just please take this with a grain of salt. This is from our own LP investing experiences. We typically are looking for probably an 18%, 20% plus annualized return. Said another way, during that whole period, you know, like if we put 100,000 bucks of our own capital into a syndication, I would like to see that translate over a five-year period, because most of these things are like a five-year hold, into about 8%, maybe 9% monthly income. 
and I think, well, it's, it's annual income broken into monthly chunks, right? So it's like 100K you put in, you're talking on average 666 bucks per month for a five-year period. And, and then at the end, you sell the property and then you get a big sales proceeds check at the end, assuming that the value has been added, the price is where it needs to be. Everything you've talked about so far, syndications sound great, but what are some of the downsides to a real estate syndication? You know, I mean, I, I'm super upfront about these and, and because I think it's about strategy matching. So many folks love to have the, you know, what's the best investment battle? You know, is, is it flipping? Is it wholesaling? Is, is it uh, multifamily syndications? Is it, you know, let's, let's compete against asset classes. Is it, is it self-storage? Is it mobile home parks? It all comes down to strategy. And the strategy for, for you will be very different than for me, Robert. And, and you know, so, so for us, we are interested in generating a certain dollar amount of monthly, quarterly cash flow. And that just means mailbox money. And so for that, syndications is a great fit because we want to be fully passive. You know, by the time that we're, our kids are a little older, we want to be fully passive so we can go travel the world, take, maybe, you know, take them on some trips, maybe even live abroad and not have to worry about working full time. So that is not a good fit in terms of syndication investing for an investor who really likes to be hands-on. A bunch of folks you know, that, that reach out to us to, uh, to potentially join our club, a certain profile of folks in, in that group, they might come from a background of being really hands-on handy, like, like you know, former GCs, like general contractors, folks who like our uh, architects. People who really love to be involved will not have a great time or experience in a, in a syndication that's totally passive because they like being in the guts of how these things work. Like they want to be active. They don't want to be passive. So I, I actually don't think that that's a great fit. If someone uh, wants to go and be part of a syndication, they probably want to actually just go buy a rental property and do it themselves. If it's like a, a rehab or the, you know, a flip or, or a burr, if you're familiar with the burr strategy, that's a really good fit for someone who wants to be more active and nerd out on it operationally. Another downside, I would say, is that you know, you're putting your trust into, a, into another person. And I feel really good about vetting that type of stuff because I have 13 years of large and small high velocity team building. I have interviewed hundreds of people. I have hired hundreds of people. I'm pretty darn good and very experienced at vetting people across the table from me. And if you are not experienced in doing that stuff, you really got to be careful with jumping into deals and syndications with other people that unless you feel like you've really got a good understanding of their experience level. And you know, the example I will give you in, as, in terms of our vetting criteria that we use is this, is this notion when we're vetting their track record, there's five big buckets of things that we vet. You know, we look at their track record, we look at their values, we look at their approach, we look at their team, and we look at their communications. And so within those buckets, there's actually a spreadsheet that has a ton of questions, over 50 questions that, <laughs> that comprise this framework just to vet the sponsor. And so going into that, we look for this thing called failure response. And I will literally ask one of the sponsors for that we invest with, like, tell me about a time that you got figuratively kicked in the teeth. You know, like as an entrepreneur, what was the time that things didn't go the way that you wanted them to? And I want you to hear, I want to hear like, how did you get through it? And like, what did you learn? I bring that up for the question around like downsides, Robert, because I think people don't realize how critical it is that they vet the res how that sponsor responds. 
because markets rise, markets fall. We know it's very likely, particularly in a time like right now, you know, with, with a potential black swan event going on right now with the coronavirus stuff, we don't know which way it's going to go. But what matters is that the capital we have put in to a bunch of these syndications is going to be responsibly managed. And the decisioning under duress, if you want to call it that, from the sponsor is going to be sound. And it's not going to be emotional. And it'll be something that they've actually, they're able to keep their hand firmly on the wheel and just make good sound judgments unemotionally. Probably last but not least, you know, for downsides, I would just say it is so critical as, as you're putting, putting your capital into an investment. Sometimes we will get a question from an investor that says something like, well, I'm glad we've talked about this, Spencer. And this sounds like, like it's something we do want to invest with alongside you. So is that 8% return guaranteed? You know, and if I get a question like that, I, I, I immediately get very worried that the person hasn't necessarily been listening because this is not a savings account. It's, it's, it's not a high yield savings account, right? You can lose all your capital. It's, you know, it's total capital loss is very much a possibility. And it's so important that people understand that. So you can lose all your money. I call that a downside. If someone is looking to get started in real estate investing, would you recommend they start with their own properties, whether it be single family or multifamily, or should they save their money and passively invest in other people's deals? That's a really tricky question to answer in a generic way. And the reason being is because it comes down to your goals. The order of operations for a person to go answer that question in their own journey comes down to these three steps. Number one, goals. Number two, strategy. Number three, tactics. And so I know, unless I know your goals, your specific goals, like maybe your goal is you want to build a thriving real estate business and you want it to be something so successful that you are able to leave that business to your children and you want this to become like a family business for the next 50 years. I mean, it's a very different goal than I want to go sit on the beach 10 years from now or I want to go travel with my kids. Because if someone wants to go and let's say that they don't have capital up front, if you're capital constrained. Here, here are the three things that, that are limiting factors. If you want to sound really cool, you can say limb facts. <laughs> That's such a corporate way of saying it, but you have experience, time, and capital. Those are the three limiting factors that should come into play, in my humble opinion, when people are trying to decide what is the right goal and strategy to match that goal. Most people are starting off with limited capital. If you don't have capital, you need a means of getting capital. For a lot of people, that's their day job. If your day job is not producing enough capital, you should evaluate trying to increase your income with that day job somehow, meaning do better and get promoted, or go build a side hustle, or go find a new job, negotiate for higher income. You need to go get the capital first to then go do the passive income track. So I do think that that is informative if you're out there wrestling with like, man, I'm finally going to save up that 50K so I can do my one syndication investment next year. You know, you might not be a great fit for this strategy. You know, it, it's capital intensive. If you want to do 100% all passive in syndications, you will need to find a way to repeatedly go find more capital to invest into these syndications. If you are interested in both learning and you're willing to make big changes and you want to get active, like if you want to be an active operator, you want to be in real estate, you want that to be your job. The first step I recommend personally is going and changing your career to a real estate career in your day job. That is a really good thing to go do. And I feel very, very thankful that I somehow stumbled myself into a real estate lending 
company called Lending Home, and and that was one of the first introductions that I had in the, as in my adult life into real estate. So I think that that's a really really smart and fast way to get ramped up quickly and make an income to to get capital. So if you don't have capital, I would not go do syndications because you won't be able to find any deals to invest in, and you don't have the money to do it. If you are starting on the other end, you do have capital and you're more comfortable single family homes and go taking longer to reach your target, go do single family homes. If you like the most passive of all options, you want it to be the most recession resilient, you have capital and you don't want to spend time managing these things, you will not find a better type of asset class investment and structure than a real estate syndication for a multifamily apartment. What is a common piece of advice you often hear given by real estate quote unquote experts that you don't necessarily agree with? What is the actual truth? I think the common piece of advice that we often hear from real estate experts that I don't necessarily agree with is that you should go out and do what I did when I first got into, into commercial real estate, which is, you know, I went out and I read 24 books and listened to 400 podcasts. And a lot of the real estate experts out there these days will say, go try to devour a thousand books and, and get on every podcast. And you don't have to do that. What you need to do is start with the goals, refine your strategy, and then plan out some tactics that you should focus on. And that way you can be way more surgical in the way that you learn this stuff. And I am more than happy to always give some pointers and give some links with educational resources if folks ever want to reach out. For those listening today that might have more questions about real estate syndications or just how to get started, where can they go to connect with you? You can reach me at uh, spencer at madisoninvesting.com. Of course, we have a website at madisoninvesting.com, and I'm happy to help you. Spencer, as always, thanks so much for your time. Robert, thank you so much for bringing me back on. I'm looking forward to our next conversation, and hopefully it's sometime in the near future. All right, guys, that's all I had for this week's episode of Real Estate Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.